Hello and welcome to a new episode of the City Centric Podcast. This is a new format from us. It's an audio clip summary from a recent Urban Health Council roundtable on air pollution, race and health. For those not aware, the Urban Health Council exists to bring new players to the public health conversation. It engages private, public and third sector organisations together to progress industry practices, support research direction and positively influence policy interventions on public health. It is committed to ending health inequities and applying an anti-racist approach to public health. Council members gain access to a wide variety of resources and activities that further knowledge, improve decision making and lead to better health outcomes. Urban health is a term used to investigate the intersectional lived experience of urban dwellers. It focuses on the unique influence urbanisation has on our biological systems through exposure to environmental and psychosocial stresses. The Roundtable series are sponsored by the UK's National Lottery Community Fund and Lendlease, a globally integrated real estate and investment group with core expertise in shaping cities and creating strong and connected communities. Throughout this podcast, you'll hear from a range of audience members discussing and answering three anchoring questions. What are the biological hazards of air pollution? How do you observe the structures and methods of racism in your industry, which have an effect on health? And as COVID-19 opens up an opportunity to bring forward more stricter, more biologically supportive policies, how can we deliver this? We hope you enjoy the audio and do visit urbanhealthcouncil.com to learn more and get involved. What we're going to be covering today is um, we're going to have the overview of the report and findings. So um, it was a full collaborative effort between Dan, Marie, Alahi, and myself in getting this report on um, air pollution and race and health. Um, so we're going to be giving those those key findings. Then we're going to open up to a very quick Q&A. So anybody that has any questions specifically on what we discuss in the report, we can do so at the time. And then we're going to open up to, to an open discussion where we're going to discuss three, tro- uh, three topics. And then I will be giving you um, specific mental constructs of how we're going to discuss the said topics. So um, yeah, hopefully we're going to have a really great discussion, learn new things, and um, push a little nudge forward. And one of those hazards, air pollution, is likely to have played a crucial role in the COVID-19 pandemic. So there is evidence that suggests that higher levels of air pollution in an area are also linked to higher levels of um, or more cases, more severe causes of disease and also higher mortality. So there, there, there seems to be a link between air pollution exposure and COVID-19 um, susceptibility. And overall, all these negative effects of air pollution on health sort of just weaken, they, they weaken our bodies, they make us they deplete us of the resources that we need to cope with additional stresses or additional hazards such as the virus, the, the coronavirus. Um, but what we don't see on this map, but what is really important is that also the, 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 the distribution of exposure to air pollution in the, the population is not random. People who are suffering from long-haul COVID, um, so basically not really recovering from the disease, then are also again more susceptible to the negative health effects of air pollution. So we're sort of looking at a positive feedback loop. Who is allowed access to cleaner air and who is denied the access to cleaner air? How is air pollution being defined within policy? Is that definition 
enough in including inequities that we are seeing in our society. There are two pathways, two biological pathways in which air pollution affects us. The first one, maybe you can say it's more mechanistic, more direct, that upon inhalation, it is going through our, <laughs> through our nose or our mouth, down into through our cardiovascular system, including our, our, our blood, and therefore it's traveling through all of our tissues. Those particles travel through all of our tissues because it travels through our bloodstream. Therefore, through the tissues, it affects all of our organs, kidneys, heart, lungs, pancreas, you name it, it affects us because it goes through our bloodstream. The second pathway is this one of the HPA axis. So in summary, the HPA axis, again, it works as a, a negative feedback loop where the, 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 the nervous system senses a change within the internal environment, external environment, and through a series of hormones being released goes up and messages to the brain. The brain then gives out to the necessary responses, i.e. it might talk to the endocrine system and make hormonal changes. It might speak to our immune system, our metabolical systems to make changes to allow us to adapt to that change. So one example that is very easy to understand this is through a temperature change. So our skin and I through and our nervous system goes, oh, there is, we sense a change in temperature. Let's say it gets hotter and <clears throat> that just sends that relay up to the brain. The brain comes back down and goes, okay, what do we, what do I need to do? Well, we probably need to change the way our cardiovascular system is working. I need to make the body sweat. I probably also need to change digestion. The way that just digestion works in the heat is very different than in the cold. All of those cues are for us to be able to adapt and be able to deal with this new change that's happening externally in our environment. What's really interesting is that it's not just the physical world where our body enacts this, this, this response system, it also is the psychological side. So when you have people that are living, knowingly living in areas of, of, of air pollution and understanding that their environments are being polluted, understanding that their bodies are being polluted, that experience within itself is also a stressor. So you have these multiple pathways coalescing together in the experience of air pollution that ends up affecting health. In the case of secondary smoke, we don't say, if you're exposed to one cigarette, it's better than, your, than being exposed to 10 cigarettes. We just say, do not be exposed to secondhand smoke or do not smoke. I think one of the things we have to think about with air pollution is it actually comes from essentially the need um, for us to use more energy than we actually need in order to survive. Because if we can actually reduce the amount of, of unnecessary movement, um, that would be a great help. And electric vehicles produce as many, possibly more particulates than, than an internal combustion engine vehicle. What I would say as a campaigner on the issue of clean air in Southall, racism is absolutely rife. Um, and I look at the fact that we have an existing law, the Environmental Protection Act, but my local council claims that the bar is set too high to take a property developer to court. And what I'm finding to get this, if you like, on the national agenda, actually has taken people who are predominantly white 
in areas where they're now thinking, actually, this injustice could be coming my way. I don't want to sorry, smell the stench from my local gas works when it's being redeveloped. Actually, really to push the conversation forward and to get the spotlight on what is actually happening in my area. The GLA is certainly encouraging the adoption of whole life carbon assessments which take account of the carbon emissions associated with the production of building materials. Um, so yes, there, there is increasing attention being paid in this area to try and reduce the, the carbon footprint of, of, of construction materials. Whether that will go as far as kind of looking at the air quality impacts associated with moving and transporting those materials um, remains to be seen. I think the real concern is around the way um, the conversation is framed. So on one of my projects, I've been in so many meetings talking about a new development causing congestion, but the problem is always phrased in a way you put more cars on the road and you create more congestion for people that are already driving on the road, but it's never framed in a way you're causing more pollution in that area. That's just air pollution has never been mentioned in any of those meetings. And I think that's kind of a real concern, the way that issue is tackled. Um, and then over to my question, this may be a kind of basic obvious question, but never quite obvious to me. So there's been about 130,000 COVID deaths in the UK last year, and then air pollution causes about 30 to 40,000 premature deaths a year, every single year in the UK, depending on which statistics you look at. And I've always wondered, why aren't we talking about air pollution as a public health emergency? Why is the conversation never kind of framed in that way? It's always this issue on the fringes that we need to start talking about dealing with. But given the changes we've made due to COVID, why isn't this being viewed as a public health emergency? One thing that stands out for me uh, in an opposite person, I guess, um, talking to someone from the Somali community during the pandemic and about a phrase he said of people are concerned, uh, putting bread on the table and that really kind of stands out to me in kind of uh, the structure in the sense that um, I guess the person he was talking about is low paid works, erratic hours possibly works doing things that expose themselves to pollution such as driving seems to be a very popular uh, way to earn income during the pandemic um, for low wages or working in factories and warehouses also you've got indoor air pollutants um, kind of really poor working conditions and the toll that that would have on health and sleep um, and stress generally um, I mean, all of these systems are kind of trappings in the sense of one needs to work, they need to earn money, and the jobs that are mostly available are things that are directly and indirectly harmful to them. So things like working factories, um, working, driving. Um, I mean, they are my observations, and I do kind of symp sympathise with um, kind of... Um, opponents of measures that come into air about air pollution. So things like clean air zones, if you're driving a white van around to fix roofs or uh, do driveways or something like that, and how that might affect your margins driving into a city because you're going to get more money in the city than working out of the city. Um, 
I can see how those systems, and as somebody, a few people have mentioned here about how solutions to air pollution often kind of inadvertently make some of these inequalities a bit harder to bear. Why the hell was this allowed to happen in the first place, right? How, when we know that cancer rates are higher, we know that there's chemical plants everywhere. Why is it that, you know, houses were allowed to build here and people were allowed to live here in the first place? I know a lot of it to do with different types of redlining and things that happen in the U.S., but there needs to be a change um, from that perspective. I mean, just thinking about the property development industry at large, I, the first thing I wrote down thinking about this was it's not profitable to make things equitable. One of the things that kind of worries me is, you know, I think we're not going to adapt to climate change unless we start to think about the things that are making people vulnerable to it in the first place. If there's something to come out of COVID-19, if there is a recognition that uh, our environment is um, disproportionately um, making uh, underrepresented people unwell, and that that's having you know that's having a, a, a really significant such a significant impact uh, on on particularly on Bain communities, then it isn't sufficient just to say, oh well, that's a result of housing, therefore we need better housing. There has to be a more systemic response, I think. There hasn't been enough recognition that our kind of traditional form of education uh, isn't, isn't achieving that representation that we want. So I think if, if I was to say what, what's the opportunity to come out or what, what, this, uh, what could this be the impetus for, uh, it would be to rethink how education and training is working or not working because it's not driving the change that, that we need. Often some people in those kind of situations are struggling just with living day to day. So, I mean, you know, getting then involved in, in sort of a community event or, or putting the responsibility on that individual to take a less polluted route to school, it just is not fair and not realistic. And really in the industry, you shouldn't be imagining what it's like to be the opposite of yourself. You know, talk to people who are ethnic minorities. You know, stop bandying us as BAME. You know, talk to a black person, an Asian person, a disabled person. Listen to their stories. Really use your powers to empathize and comprehend. Um, I had quite an interesting conversation with two environmental consultants. Um, and one came at the angle, I'm doing this presentation to uh, my professional body. And I thought, great, fantastic. Um, and I sort of like put my soul on the table. This is what it's like for me. Lone parent living in a one bedroom flat with two children being unfairly polluted by a property developer. So after the meeting, um, he came back with quotes which were wholly inaccurate. Um, and I said, you know, if you're not prepared to quote verbatim, just leave it out. Um, so it's disheartening. You know, you've got an industry with a certain agenda um, and really do not want to move away from that. Um, and I find that utterly frustrating. Um, and when you look at communities who are trying 
to have a voice. What you have to bear in mind, as uh, some of you said, they're working in low-paid jobs, um, their health has been compromised by air pollution, as Aricelli talked about, it creates all sorts of stress. Um, the mental health impact really, I think, is um, underemphasized. Um, how do we make change? I agree, education is the way forward, but we have a long way to go. I mean, I've got a friend uh, who is director of graduate studies at a particular university. And I said to her, you know, you've been in academia for 30 odd years. You know, why is it that you're not a professor now? And one of the things she mentioned was racism. And I said, yeah, I remember having a conversation with you about how in the academic world, there is a desire or, you know, a comfort in recruiting people from a, a similar background, you know, people recruiting in their own image. And until that actually changes and racism is dismantled, I don't really see inequalities and the policies and the inequities that it causes fundamentally changing. Communities don't need to be platformed because they are already platforming themselves. We simply need to listen and that the knowledge that they have is good enough knowledge and data to start making changes. We don't need to bring the expertise and enact knowledge supremacy to start making decisions. The moment someone is sick in an environment, that, that sole person is enough data to start making changes. If we create the health justice infrastructure, each community can take those tools, as in, sorry, a democratic access to health infrastructure. Each, can, each community can maintain their sovereignty and take those tools and use those tools in how they see fit for their community. Taking third actors out of the conversation where they're not needed. So that paternalistic framing goes out to giving and sorry part of that health infrastructure has to then also be matched by funding people need to fund things like cash campaigners again they can do their own work they just need the funding they need those hard structural mechanisms for them to be able to take on that change more so than a paternalistic let's platform or let's do something for them um, that, that they that they get the right tools it um, seems to be imperative for actual change rather than performative 